three, two, one. Thanks for joining us today. Our guest is Mr. Jonathan Gay, who is an Army veteran, an attorney, and a keen student of history. And we're going to be talking about the situation in Ukraine, uh, specifically the Russian military activity or invasion of Ukraine, which just started either last night or this morning, depending on where you are. Um, there's a lot of ground to cover. Uh, we don't expect to, uh, to try to get this entire situation uh, in one, uh, one episode of one show. We'll probably do a um, a weekly or a, a continuing series uh, on this topic as the situation there in Ukraine is likely to play out over the course of many, many weeks and months, uh, if not years. Uh, but anyway, uh, welcome to Jonathan. Looking at the situation, I mean, what, what do you see is happening uh, right now? Because it's, it's kind of hard to tell really what's going on. It is. I, I'm surprised. I, this, this was a much bigger invasion than I think that most of us expected. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting that you and I have exchanged some messages to this effect. Uh, we, we sort of were wondering last week, well, what the heck is President Biden talking about? Because he keeps saying this massive invasion, and, and I don't think anyone truly felt that, at least not too many people felt that, that Putin would attempt this. Obviously, he's attempted quite a bit more than we imagined. I think at this point, given that he's in Kiev, given that they're in Mariupol, I think that they're looking for regime change. And the only question in my mind is, do they want to just set up a puppet government and leave? Or are the Russians thinking that they'll keep their, you know, a sizable contingent there and occupy all the country and attempt to pacify the entire country, which, which would be bloody and, and extraordinary for us to even talk about. But I don't think that we expected to be where we were today, so I think we have to not take anything off the table. And I think that that's a good point. And, and basically, I mean, before this, before the maiden protest started in 2014, that's essentially what we had anyway. There was essentially a Russian puppet there. That's what Yanukovych was. Uh, and, and, you know, just for the brief recap, what happened with that was when he fled the country and went to the safety of Russia, that sort of pulled the curtain back and exposed him uh, for being a, a Russian puppet. You know, before that, he could, he could get away with kind of being the subtle, uh, he could follow orders from Moscow, but as long as he did it subtly enough, you know, people in Ukraine were willing to put up with it or overlook it or, or not pay too much attention to it. But that really changed things. And so all of a sudden we realize now it's out in the open, the emperor has no clothes and, and the Ukrainians didn't like what they saw. So it's certainly possible that the scale of uh, military operations which we're seeing today, which are substantial by early reports, and we should always say, you know, situations like this are fluid. Um, there's a lot of reports coming in about things happening. Some of them could be true, they could not be true, or they could partially be true. Um, and I don't think we've really had time to verify yet which of those three, the things we're seeing and hearing, uh, which category they really fall into. But I agree with your point that it appears that the scale of operations is much, much larger than what we initially uh, anticipated, uh, certainly larger than what you would need to, to secure uh, the separatist regions in the far eastern portions of Ukraine. This, this goes way beyond that. Yeah, it does. Well, actually, CNN had earlier uh, live footage of airborne soldiers landing at an airport in Kiev who, who, were, who were willing, and this really surprised 
surprised me. They were they were willing to go on the record with CNN and confirm that they were Russian troops. So I was surprised how brazen and open that they uh, that they seem to be. I've seen reports that the uh, Ukrainians have brought down already six aircraft today. Uh, there's some fake images floating around, but I don't think anybody's contested that the uh, that the actual incident itself, the incidents themselves, were were real. So this this is is pretty wild. Yeah, I, 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 and I guess go ahead. This this is largest. This is the largest action in Europe, from what I'm reading, since World War II. I agree, and, and it actually could be much larger than we even know about right now. It's, it's quite possible that there are battles going on right now that we haven't heard about yet or that just haven't have been blacked out or haven't been covered. Um, but it, at least what's been covered so far suggests um, a comprehensive military operation designed to either secure control of most of the eastern half of the country um, or certainly at minimum degrade and destroy Ukraine's, Ukraine's capability to launch any type of uh, retaliatory measures uh, to the uh, independent separatist regions in the east. So th that's a bare minimum um, that, they're, that, they're trying to, to, that they're trying to achieve. So my question for today's discussion, I guess, is now having we set that down with a little bit of context for what's going on, you know, whether the whether United States likes it or not, we have a choice to make. And, and whether we want that responsibility or not, what we do or don't do will have an enormous effect on, on this situation and the way things go. So as a nation, you know, I, it's one of those things, just like COVID, I, I wish we could just wake up and it was gone. That, that'd, be, that'd be terrific. I'd be thrilled if we woke up tomorrow and then COVID had just disappeared. The same way, it would be outstanding if we could just wake up tomorrow and there was no invasion of Ukraine, but that's not gonna happen. So here we are and we have to make a choice. And I'm just, I'm just curious as to what your thoughts are as to which choices we should make. You know, what, what course of action do you see that we could do or that we should do as a country and, and with our allies, of course, with NATO? Well, I think for the moment, there's, there's no sending troops. There's no political will to send troops to fight. So uh, I think there seems to be widespread consensus in both Republican and Democratic parties that we need to send uh, arms and material and support the Ukrainians. So I think for now, that's where we are. And I think that we're just going to have to see what, what Ukrainians are able to do. If it becomes a protracted insurgency and we see that it's, um, that it's, it's becoming counterproductive to support that, then I think you'll have some, uh, you'll have some very hard conversations, but I don't think we're anywhere near that yet. I think we just got to see what the, Ukrainian military is able to do. Are they able to draw a line somehow, or are they going to have to fall back into the into the cities and, and find the cities? You know, the Russians have been doing this kind of thing in in pockets, obviously, for the last few years. They've done this in Chechnya, they've done this in Syria. They've never done this in an advanced republic like Ukraine. So. I'm anxious to see if, if the Ukraine, if the Russian military is up to the task. Yeah, that, there's a lot of things in there to unpack. Um, and, and I'll start with the most recent one you said there. It, the assumption seems to be, when you listen to whether, whether it's folks on news or whether they're chatting online or whether they're, they're journalists writing reports on this, the assumption always seems to be, uh, and I think, I think it was Robert Kagan who, who wrote a piece for the Washington Post on this today. Uh, I think the title of it was, When Putin Conquers Ukraine. 
Um, so there's, there's sort of this, a lot of analysis being built on the assumption that this will work, at least from the Russian perspective. And so while that's, that's possible, it's possible that they'll succeed in taking over Ukraine. Um, we also have to consider the consequences of failure uh, and what it would look like if their military operations don't succeed, uh, which would have, I think, pretty, pretty drastic consequences for Ukraine and Russia. Because, you know, lest we forget, you know, going back 100 years ago, uh, a disastrous military adventure at the end of World War I is what ended the Tsars. Uh, being overextended militarily contributed to the fall of the USSR and the Soviet Union. So it's certainly possible that an another failed military adventure, uh, along with uh, harsh economic conditions at home, could lead to the end of the Putin regime. And so we just ought to keep that in mind. It it it's a possible, I'm not saying it's a probability, but it's a possibility that if things go wrong, uh, that there will be consequences from that too. Yeah, and, and you know, and the, and the danger is, and I, I think you're right, I don't, I don't think there's anyone that thinks that American soldiers or even Ukrainian soldiers will go into the Kremlin and, uh, and pull Putin down, but I think that there is that danger that his own people could, and the question becomes, well, what will his moves be if he's threatened by his own people? You know, I, I expect that will not be very pleasant. So there are a lot of very dangerous consequences. You know, I keep going back to what what did he ultimately hope to accomplish here? You know, he, he went into Donetsk and the Donbass and helped those republics, uh, helped those, those provinces become separate from Ukraine, but he did so at a, at a at a fairly good cost to Russia and, and at a fairly good cost to the Russian economy, but not, not anywhere near what he's about to incur. This is going to incur some significant financial cost on Russia. And for what gain? That's what I keep running through my mind. You know, you could at least say when Hitler attempted to invade Eastern Europe, you know, it was an industrial society. He was trying to get the natural resources, trying to get the oil. You know, to, to my knowledge, there's not those same sorts of economic upsides in this economy for Putin. So what does he gain if he truly reduces this country and in turn suffers severe sanctions? Yeah, it, it's, you know, it's impossible to get in the mind of, of somebody else, especially a foreign leader. You know, most of the time we have a hard time uh, deciding what we think our own president's up to. So it, it's difficult to really determine what uh, the, the leader of another country is thinking. Um, all we can do is observe their actions uh, and, and try to make sense of how their actions match the, uh, the, the words that they use and the, and the rhetoric that they use. I, I was surprised at, at Putin's address um, earlier this week. Uh, the language seemed to, to change pretty significantly from what we'd heard previously. And I heard a lot of talking points recited that I don't think have much basis in reality or much basis in fact. So it makes you wonder, you know, that if, if that's just a propaganda statement not to be taken at face value, then the true motives are not known or at least not being advertised to, to the world. Um, but but you, we said something earlier I wanted to go back to real quick. You know, when it comes to the, the immediate consequences um, and, and the, the speed and scale with which the Russian forces are moving into Ukraine, it is certainly possible that Ukraine could just collapse. Um, it's certainly possible that the regime could just disintegrate. And I say that because our, our easternmost ally there in Poland is, is, right in the, is right in the way of where the refugee flow is going to come. And so I, I think when you, when you talk about our allies, I, I would say that the, the Polish government and the Poles are probably more nervous than anyone else outside of Ukraine 
about what's about to happen there. You know, Poland is the, one of the favorite destinations for folks who travel, who want to travel west in Ukraine, and that's, that's likely where most of the refugees would flow. And, and based on some of the imagery we're seeing, it appears that there's already uh, an exodus starting uh, to gain momentum. We have no idea, you know, what the si size or scale of that is, but it would almost certainly be heading in their direction. And so you look at their border and you say, you know, are you about to be overwhelmed with refugees from Ukraine and, and your border is already difficult to manage? Um, I would say just as a, a place to start with the immediate repercussions of this, that's, that's where I think NATO will be looking right now, because Poland's going to be the first one to bear the brunt when it comes west. Yeah, and you know, I want to go to something you said, uh, does the regime fall? And, and I wonder what that even looks like. I, I don't get the sense that any regime can simply wrap Ukraine up into a nice little tidy package and turn it over to, to Putin. I don't think the surrender, you know, if they can capture Zelensky, sure, maybe Zelensky would, would come on camera and say, I encourage the people of Ukraine to surrender. But what then? Will the Ukrainians surrender? And, you know, one of the, the other things to keep in mind is because Putin occupied the Donbass and Donetsk, he had taken away those those places that were very, that were much more sympathetic towards Russia. You know, the parts of Ukraine that are left are much less responsive to Russia. And so I think that Russia will have a hard time getting very many public leaders to come forward and accept uh, Russian rule. I, I could be totally wrong about that, but I think that that's going to be a real challenge. You know, anybody that cooperates with them is, has the, the fear that they're going to be branded as some kind of Vichy-like uh, regime. No, I We all know what happened to the Vichy. You know, they, they, history, not only did history not treat them well, but neither did their French, uh, their fellow French citizens. Yeah, no, I was going to say, um, I guess if I had to try to describe what, the, what a collapsed regime would look like, um, I would agree that there may not be a nice, deep handover of someone in Kiev saying, okay, now we're under Russian, we're now part of the Russian Federation or, or something like that. What you may see instead is just um, chaos, uh, pockets of violence, um, areas where there's intense fighting, areas where there's refugee flows, and then areas that are bracing to be either to either see intense fighting or refugee flows uh, from from the places where the action is going on. And and that would just I think that's probably really kind of a worst case scenario when there becomes an issue of not only how does the occupying force maintain control, but how do you turn it off? You know, how do you once there's no once if you cut the head off and there's no one to say stop fighting, then we're just going to keep keep going until we until who knows when. Um, so it could just go on and on. You know, someone said earlier, you, you install a uh, puppet government, fine. You, you end up with another mate. You know, Putin, part of Putin's goal was to avoid these future color revolutions. Has he laid the seeds for more color revolutions in Ukraine? And, and again, I, I keep going back to what, what does he gain economically? It seems like this is all cost. It doesn't seem like there's any economic upside to this. You know, this pushes him further into the arms of the Chinese, and I don't think that helps him ultimately. Well, then, then suppose the motive is not economic. Um, you know, I, I mentioned I mentioned Yanukovych earlier. He was what uh, I've heard some analysts call. Let me see if I can say this correctly: Koronizatstia, Koronizatstia, which is a Russian term that means 
This, is, this refers to a practice the Soviet Union had of installing uh, puppet leaders who were from the, country, the satellite countries they ruled, uh, but they took orders from Moscow. So they would, and Yanukovych fits that description. You know, he's from he's from the Ukraine, but he takes orders from Putin, and so and they do this across the border. So this practice continued uh, under a different name and, and under different leadership once the Soviet Union fell, but, but Russia was still doing it. And so maybe the objective here is to reestablish uh, perceived or actual lost control of that territory, um, because that's what it looks like they're doing. It looks like they're there to take territory, maybe not necessarily for economic gain, but for geographic security. And you, as you know, you know you're well versed in the history of this, of this area. You know, the, the danger to the frontier uh, to Russia is something that's real. Uh, it's been around a long time. You know, twice in the past 200 years, massive invasion forces have come from Europe to, to Russia, once with Napoleon, the second time with Hitler. And, every, and both times they came right through, uh, you know, Eastern Europe uh, and, and through Ukraine. So you can, you can sort of see, at least from a historical perspective, how that makes sense in a way to Russian strategic thought that we must have this territory under our direct control in order to be secure, um, from, from the West. And, um, so maybe that's one reason I, I would want to say, say one thing real quick too, before the maiden revolution, before the maiden protest, there was not a lot of popular support in Ukraine for joining NATO. Um, I, I think it was something like less than 20%. It, was very, it, wasn't, a, it wasn't a very popular idea. Um, there were people who wanted to be closer to the EU. That's a separate thing. But being, being NATO was not something that Ukrainians were, were popularly in support of. And I, I think probably that's changed a little bit now, uh, but because of Russia's own actions. So it sort of looks like a self-fulfilling prophecy now uh, where we, we're afraid they're going to they're be driven to the West and your actions end up exactly doing that, driving them into the arms of the West. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the his, I totally agree with you on the history. Uh, what you think about Germany, and and they had they had actually established a pretty good rapprochement with Germany these past ten or so years, to the point where a lot of people were saying, "Hey, you know, Germany is totally in the tank for for Russia now," and now they push Germany uh, to the point of trying to renounce a lot of their economic deals and, and Nordstrom two, uh, I don't know what will happen Nordstrom one, but you know, you, you Nordstrom, but you see this, the, the challenge with this thinking is, well, we're going to, we're going to fix the frontiers here and that'll solve everything. It doesn't solve everything. It creates more issues. And I just, I, I keep, you know, I think you're right. I think that I like to think that Vladimir Putin is a logical person and has some kind of, of objective here, but it's just, it seems so counterproductive at the end of the day that it really makes you nervous. It really makes you nervous. And, and it, it, it worries me to the point of if he's threatened, what will he do? And, and that was something that he mentioned earlier. I think the, I think their translation was, you'll see something you've never seen before. Some, some people interpreted that to be uh, a, a veiled threat to the use of nuclear weapons, but I, I prefer, I, I actually think that's referencing either some kind of new cyber attack or new drone technology that's out there. I don't necessarily think it automatically means that we're, that he's referencing uh, the use of nuclear weapons. You know, the Russians innovate too. They come up with new weapon systems that they haven't told anybody about and we haven't seen on the battlefield before. And uh, it, it's possible that they may be considering or already using those um, as we're having this conversation. And, and our intelligence agencies just haven't had a chance to catch up yet. Yeah, and, you know, I guess all that is, is certainly possible. I, 
I just I'll admit to being mystified by this. This is this is one that to me doesn't make a lot of sense. And so and so with that, you know, since we don't really know what the Russian motives are, um, that makes choosing a course of action more difficult because what is it we're trying to stop? Um, well, we don't know. Yeah, well, I, th I think their short-term objectives are certainly to conquer Ukraine. And so I think, given that, we have to do all we can to not allow them. I, I heard something interesting earlier. Um, someone said Putin's going to keep moving through this mush until he meets some steel. I think we have to give him some steel. Now, whether that steel is enough to totally push them back or not, I don't know. I'm, I'm doubtful. But I think that if you bleed the Russians to an extent in Ukraine, you will hopefully deter them from any future adventures against Poland or, or anyone else. Yeah, you know, historically, it, I would say that, um, you know, Russia as a nation has a, uh, has a higher threshold or a higher tolerance uh, for, for that type of uh, casualties than, than probably the U.S. public does. I mean, you, you know the, the scale of casualty that was suffered during the Second World War. I mean, Russia suffered more casualties than, than anyone else. Uh, and still, this was considered a great victory. So I, I think there's a chance that, it, that based on the, the, the culture there, you're, you're going to see a higher tolerance for, uh, for bloodshed than you might see, say, here in the U.S., where we might want to start pulling people out as soon as there's a few casualties. That's not, not going to be the case in Russia. You know, I agree. But what about Ukraine? U Ukraine is, a, is another... Uh, part of the world that has suffered enormously, I guess they probably suffered uh, proportionally even greater than the, uh, than, than the citizens of uh, Russia in World War II. Um, you know, what will be their capacity to suffer? And what will be, you know, what will be the extent to which the revolution will be televised? Uh, will we continue to see images coming in and out of, of CNN, or, or will, will Russia manage to clamp down on that and, and prevent that? I don't know. My, my thought is that Ukraine having suffered similarly uh, historically, and, and, and you throw in the, the sort of really kind of intense ethnic hatred that exists between Ukrainians and Russians in some places, you, you've got a recipe for very violent and bloody, uh, a very violent and bloody conflict. Uh, not one where there's just a conventional force that marches in, takes control, everybody says, okay, you won. Um, that, I don't think it'll play out like that at all. I, I think you would see just, just reprisals and, and what would look like to the outside observers, random indiscriminatory uses of, of weapons against civilians or, or other, other groups. And we'll be scratching our heads going, wait, why is this, what, what's the purpose of this? What does that, what gain does that bring? Well. It's a revenge killing, essentially, is what it is. Um, and once it gets going, it just takes on a life of its own. It does. And, and you know, uh, something we haven't talked about today, but to, to what extent does China uh, involve themselves in this? Do they, do they continue to give Russia the, the, their blessing? Uh, do, they, do they look at this as cover for them to do something similar in um uh, Taiwan. Yeah. Well, and by the way, what happened to the Olympics? Remember that? Just a couple of weeks ago, we were saying, "Oh, Putin's going to wait until after the Olympics are over." And obviously, he didn't. So sometimes, you know, I wonder. Um, you know, historically, there, there's China, Russia, not not the best of friends all the time. 
Um, and sometimes I wonder if, uh, if the president of China is not sitting there thinking, boy, I just got played. You know, I just showed up and smiled on camera and made friendly with Russia's president. And then, you know, two weeks later, they, they, they launch an invasion of Ukraine uh, and, and tell the world that, you know, we're, we're, we're their friends. Um, China did not, when, they, when their, their media issued their official statement, I think yesterday or the day before, they did not use the term invasion. Uh, to describe uh, the situation in Ukraine. So I, I would su that suggests to me that they're, if not trying to cur court Russia's favor, they're at least trying not to get on their bad side. Um, I, I wouldn't call it support, but you're right. So the China issue is really about whether or not sanctions can work. Um, if it'll just push Russia to closer to China and they'll just do more business there, uh, then is it, is it really having a, a, an effect, the effect that we want them to? Uh, as far as economic sanctions, because this so far from the Biden administration is the top uh, response of choice uh, is economic sanctions. We still don't know the, sc the exact scope of those yet, but they're being touted as unprecedented, which, of course, is probably an exaggeration for their own, you know, their own benefit to make it sound tougher than it really is. But it's also possible that they're actually coming up with some 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 new sanctions that are that are bigger than any we've done before. Um, and so I guess the question is, you know, Will China be able to help Russia evade those? And I would say they could to a degree. Uh, they could certainly do that. I, I agree with that. Um, I agree with that degree. And, and the question is to what, to, to what degree? And then, and, you know, as time goes on, you're, you're going to get a sense of, well, if, we, if, if it appears that, that the situation is, and, and you can't, I guess it's impossible to talk about, you know, this without doing a little bit of conjecture. Uh, but you look at the situation unfolding, Things get worse, fighting intensifies, there's more bloodshed, there's no clear end in sight, sanctions aren't working, or they don't appear to be working, okay, then what? You know, because that's probably going to be the thing, the question we have to deal with in the next six to 12 months, because this won't be over quick. No. No, I, I agree, and I, and I don't think, I don't know that the administration has fully thought down that far down the road. It seems like their focus was in doing everything to, to their credit, everything they possibly could to head off this this invasion that that seems so nonsensical, not not just to maybe the two of us, but also to the uh, to the so-called experts around the world. You know, this has really this has progressed to a point that I don't think very many people thought it would. So, what will the administration do? And I don't, I don't know the answer to that, and I don't think they know the answer to that. I noticed Biden was going to go on camera today at noon, and then it became 12.30, and then they pushed it back to 1.30. I don't know if, if the president has spoken yet. But. Not that I know of, uh, so I'll keep an eye on that. So I mean, you know, sometimes these things get delayed because some new piece of information came in at the last minute, and we got to rewrite everything we were going to say. And um, or, or somebody made a, somebody, some foreign leader called, and all of a sudden, you know, it could change the situation, so you got to talk to them. Um, you know, it's a fluid situation, so I don't know what the, what the reason behind that is. These are frightening times. It, it is, and, and the other thing that, that, that when, you, when you bring up the term frightening, you know, there's, there's a concern out there that the, the movement of American and NATO military forces east towards Poland, towards Romania, um, is positioning us to, to actually get into a straight-up shooting war with Russia. I would like to emphasize that we are not currently in a shooting war with Russia. We, NATO is not currently at war with Russia, neither is the United States, um, but Russia and Ukraine are at war. And that's on our, our easternmost allies' doorstep. 
And so, you know, when we, when we look at troops that are moving forward, even in small numbers, I mean, I don't think that 3,000 American troops is going to scare anyone. I'm sure Putin knows that that's a token force and it's to reassure our allies. Um, but nevertheless, it signals an intent on our part and a willingness uh, to increase the amount of uh, personnel we have in that, in that theater. And that signal, that opens the door for much larger uh, future increases because we have the infrastructure in place in Europe to move large amounts of forces really quickly. Um, it wouldn't take, it's, it's not like trying to get people to Afghanistan, which is, you know, another five hour flight or six hour flight from Ramstein in Germany. You know, we're, we're talking about just putting them on the, on the planes and trains and getting them out there a lot faster. And so there are people concerned that that's going to happen. Yeah, and you know, my, my big concern is that China takes advantage of this and chooses to move on Taiwan, which suddenly we're, you know, we're already in a new world. Um, we woke up this morning in a new world, but we, we'll damn sure be in a new world if China moves on Taiwan. And, and I would say that, that the Chinese are, are probably watching to see what happens with this one. And so based on how the U.S. and, and Europe responds, to this situation, it could very well shape their own thinking on whether or not they should attempt something like that uh, with respect to Taiwan. Because Taiwan's a little bit different animal. You got to cross water to get there, even though it's still pretty close to the yeah. coast. There's no direct land route, um, and so that that is a pretty significant game changer in terms of logistics for a military force uh, when you can just roll in there and by land, or whether you have to come by boat and plane. Um, but yeah, I, I'm I'm certain that they uh, that they're watching this with very keen interest and they may very well decide to do one thing or another based on, on what our response is. So, and you know, this is an election year for us here in the state, so I would imagine inevitably this will move right to the top of the uh, agenda uh, of that. And I think we're already sort of seeing that, uh, at least for the time being. You know, the media, the news cycle changes quick and the top issue can suddenly leave, but I think for now this is moving up to the, to the top of the list uh, of things to be talked about. Yeah, I, I think so too. Uh, it's, it's interesting to see the Republican Party sort of moving all over the map on this issue. You've got the, the traditional wing in the Republican Party that's um, supportive of the administration and their response, and Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell, and then, then you've got the, these new Republicans uh, who seem to be carving out their own area on this, either saying, well, look, it's not our fight, or we need to focus primarily on China. I think, though, that Tucker Carlson is the only one who seems to be giving Russia a total green light. I think everyone else is saying, well, we've got problems, but the question becomes, what do we do in response to those problems? Yeah, there was an interesting piece. I'll, I'll send you a link to this later. Um, there was an interesting piece published, I think, uh, earlier this week that compared Tucker Carlson to Father Conklin. Uh, prior, you know, for folks who don't know who that is and are listening, uh, that was a person who before World War II voiced support for the Nazis and told the American public we need to stay out of it and the Nazis aren't that bad and uh, things of that nature. So I don't know if that's really a fair comparison or not because um, I don't listen to Tucker Carlson, so I don't, I don't know exactly what, what he said. Um, but I, I've heard, you know, bits and pieces here and there that don't really make a lot of sense to me. Um, I'm not sure what, what the thought process is uh, other than to drive ratings and to try to get attention by making a lot of noise, which if that's the goal, okay, you know, hats off, it's working. Um, I, I don't know yeah. that, that that's not the same thing as, as giving sound advice or intelligent analysis, though. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. So, so I don't even know, like I, I was going to ask, I didn't have a chance to look before we started, and I wanted to. I don't know what's working its way through Congress right now, if anything, in terms of a, of a formal U.S. response 
uh, not only in, in terms of sanctions or if there's other uh, anything else that's that's being proposed. I, maybe it's too soon for that. Um, I don't know. Yeah, and I, I don't either. Uh, I, I think it goes back to what we said earlier. I don't think that anyone fully expected this kind of of um, invasion. So I think you're going to see a lot of people scrambling to catch up with the times. And, and I and, think you'll see aid package, both economic aid, I think you're also going to see a lot of military aid packages popping up. Now, the clarification, the, the United States has already been sending aid to Ukraine, have they not? They, they have, yes, but I, I suspect that there'll be a, a bigger allocation and appropriation, at least proposed in the uh, in the very near future, if not today. And, and it's going to be, you know, just from a practical standpoint now, it, it's going to become quite difficult to uh, to physically get things there. If, if, you know, you shut down the airspace over Ukraine, there's questions about whether or not they even have an, an air traffic control authority. Um, if you're going to fly cargo planes out there, they're big, fat, and slow. It's an easy target uh, for, for fighter planes. And you got Russian fighters out there, which I, I'm almost certain are over Ukrainian airspace as we speak. Um, so you, they're, they're now, if you want to send supplies in that way, there is now a direct risk to our own personnel and our own equipment uh, in doing so. And, and that's, that wasn't the case previously. Now you could just fly something in there and, and drop it off where you can't do that now. Do you, do you bring it over from Poland and, and up through Romania? I would think that if you're, if you're going to do it, I'm not advocating that, but I'm saying if you're going to do that, that's, I don't know how, how else you could do it. That those would yeah. be your, those would be your primary entry points. Yeah, this, this is going to be a fascinating conflict to, to watch. Um, and, and, and it would be, from an academic side of things, it's very interesting. And then when you start thinking about it from the human side of things, it's, it's tragic because these are people who lived in a very advanced society. They have not attacked Russia. They have not even attacked Russian separatists to a large degree in uh, in Donetsk and Donbass. They, they sort of held back over the last few years. And uh, they, they haven't attempted to take back Ukraine, despite the fact that, that I'm sorry, uh, Crimea, despite the fact that Crimea was taken from them. And now they're being bombed. And now they've got troops in their backyard and tanks in their backyards. And it's just, it's, it's a tragic human story. And, and, you know, the situation out there in the far east of Ukraine, even for the past few years, it's been really difficult to get solid, reliable information uh, from that from that area because there's not a lot of reporting that goes on and you know you, you've seen things pop up and it's, it's difficult to really ascertain what you're looking at uh, because one of the key components of this entire situation is information warfare uh, which is to, to put video imagery and, and pictures out there that are, that are either not truthful or, or entirely deceptive in order to influence the opinion of either the American public the Ukrainian public or, or the Russian public uh, and so they've, they've claimed uh, the exact opposite of what you said. They've claimed that Ukraine has been shelling uh, ethnic Russians in eastern Ukraine and in the separatist regions. They claim that they, there have been multiple attacks on, on, Russian eth on ethnic Russians in that area. And, um, and I think that those claims have gone a long way towards driving up uh, not only involvement of uh, militias or other folks that came across the border from Russia to fight, but also of, of public opinion. Uh, in Russia itself. I'm not saying their claims are true. I'm simply saying that those claims are, are, are definitely playing a role in how the, the folks in Russia see things. They, they are. 
And I also noticed that Russia is uh, prohibiting any protest, and they've been arresting protesters. You've had a few spontaneous protests pop up. Um, it's, it's interesting how strong Putin seems to be in some ways, and yet, on the other hand, how weak he seems to be. It, this, this fascinating interplay between strength and weakness uh, with Putin is, is one of the most uh, intriguing topics of discussion, I think. You know, and, and think, I think back to, you know, 1991, and I'm a, I'm a junior in high school. You're probably the same, about the same age. Um, all our life, we had been under the shadow of the Cold War. We'd always grown up with the Soviet threat, this potential for nuclear war. I mean, you know, as kids, that's, those are things that we saw, heard about, read about. It was our entire life was spent uh, under that framework of thought. And then one day we wake up and there is no more USSR. It's, just, it's gone. Um, it just disappeared. So having like, how could this this massive threat that has captured our imagination and attention for so long just suddenly doesn't exist anymore? Um, and so I, I say that because I think the same thing could happen to the Putin regime. Uh, I think the same thing could happen. We we think he's the, the you know the strong leader in control of a massive military force, and and threatening NATO. And all of a sudden, we're going to wake up one day and find out that he he's not there anymore and he, he's not in charge. I'm not saying that will happen, just that it could. Uh, just just a possibility. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think you've got to. I'm sure you have a group of people inside Russia who who are looking at the situation and, and looking to exploit it for their gain. Political people who are close to close to the top rung of government. You know, and I've seen I've seen social media posts on Facebook from people who are who live in Russia. Uh, you know, the translate feature is probably not you know, 100% accurate because some of the phrases sound a little strange, but. Um, there, there's more than a few of those out there that are not very uh, friendly towards the, uh, the Putin administration. And, and that's something that I did not see prior to the start of, of these hostilities. And so that, that tells me that at least somebody out there is, has been affected enough by this to want to speak, to say something vocally. Yeah, you know, uh, and I wonder if those folks are on social media, I, I cannot imagine that there's truly a, a media blackout for them. You know, I, I would think that they would be in touch with, you know, I look at uh, our, our friend Thomas. Uh, looks like he was on social media as recently as an hour ago on Facebook. So, I, you know, I cannot imagine that somehow, maybe I'm wrong, but does Russia have the tools to segregate content on Facebook that maybe you or I are able to see in order to keep their citizens and the people within their borders from seeing. I noticed that he had posted a translation of Putin's most recent speech a couple of days ago, and that is now gone. Um, so I, I don't know if he took it down or someone else did, but it's not on his timeline anymore. Mm. And that's, that's unfortunate because yeah. I wanted to go back through it and just look at it again to get a, a, more, a better sense for, uh, for what was actually said, you know, from someone who translated it that I've known for a while. Um, that that would yeah. be useful, but I, I don't see it on his uh, on his uh, page anymore. Well, I wonder. Speaking of Putin, uh, uh, I followed Zelensky's speech yesterday. What happens to Zelensky? Does he does he stay in Kiev? Does he move to to um, is it Lviv? Uh, does he does he go to Poland? You know, wh where will where will the government go over the next few days? And uh, maybe they're already there, for all I know. And, you know, you, you leave the country, you know, that, that seems an awful lot like a, a, a capitulation. And so it's, it's going to be kind of hard to rally your people to fight if you're not there with them, 
you know, you can't say yay, you know, resist the Russians when you're safe in Poland. And, and you know, I, I get the feeling that there's enough, maybe I'm a little too, maybe I'm too much of a romantic, but I get the feeling that there's enough romantic sentiment about staying and fighting that you may see some of those leaders actually, you know, offer themselves up as sacrifice. That, you know, and go down fighting. Now that, that's so what, it's, yeah. That's what they said they're going to do. I, I, it remains to be seen if they really will. You know, once bullets start going by your head, it changes the, uh, the thought process a little bit. Um, yeah. But they, they could very well do it. I'm not saying they won't. Uh, it just is an unknown. These, these next few days are going to be fascinating. I, I hope that you'll have me back on and we can keep this conversation oh, going. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's what I was going to say. You know, we, we have an obligation uh, to the facts to actually watch and see what new developments come out and what, what new pieces of information we have to work with. And so it would be impossible, really, to, to do much more uh, than what we've had, had already. So, uh, yeah, we, we've, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely have another discussion and uh, future conversations because I, I would imagine that this will play out over the course of uh, months. Uh, if not years, um, I, I was going to say, you know, uh, are we back in a new Cold War? I, it really looks like it. Um, I agree. I, I mean, I don't. I know nobody wants that. I don't want that. I mean, I, don't, I know that's the last thing anybody wants. But we don't always get what we want. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I would go one further. Not only are we back in a, in a new Cold War, <coughs> but we, we're in a different kind of Cold War. Uh, I'm. I'm not thinking of a single instance in the the history of the Cold War where we saw a war fought uh, in Europe. We saw a conflict, you know, we saw the Russians tamp down on the Hungarians. Uh, we saw the Russians in a lot of places in Europe where they already were, but they, they certainly weren't fighting wars that we were supporting on their borders. Similarly, in China, when the Cold War really ramped up after the Korean War, and the Cold War uh, sort of got its frozen point, we, we weren't seeing conflicts anywhere close to China. We see them in Vietnam. I guess you'd say Vietnam technically borders China, but we were, it was a long way from um, from what you would consider the, the Chinese heartland. And so now we're actually in two conflicts. One only a few hundred kilometers from Russia's borders and the other only a few kilometers from China's borders where we could very well see uh, hot wars. So it's, it's new times. And, and, and what I was going to say to add piggyback on that directly, because that's, that's a good segue, is you know places like Chechnya, Ossetia, um, places like uh, Kazakhstan, where there's been unrest before, uh, how do they respond to this? Do they respond by saying, okay, the show of force has convinced us to fall in line, or do they say, oh, Russia's tied down in Ukraine, now's our chance. Um, they don't have enough resources to deal with us and the Ukrainians at the same time. So if we're going to make a move, this would be the time to do it. I don't know which of those, those options they were going to choose, uh, but it'll be certainly something to keep an eye on as we go forward in this. You know, and, and I'll leave you with this. Uh, I, I see a tweet from Ilya Ponomarenko, uh, I'm not extremely strong with uh, Ukrainian names, he's a defense reporter with the Kiev Independent, and he's reporting Ukraine's top general says Russia's blitzkrieg on day one has failed. So it, it seems like they, they've still got their confidence at the end of day one. Yeah, 
I'll give my friend Max too a shout um, from Max Kovalev, who I did the preview show with because he's from Ukraine. And I, I, you know, we we talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago when we thought it was going to just kind of go away like it usually does. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely interested on on the perspective from folks who are either on the ground there or, or have connections to people who are, uh, because it's really difficult to get a full and accurate sense of the, the the ground truth from this far away. As we like to say, you know, when we were in Iraq or Afghanistan, you're you're looking at something six thousand miles away through a straw. Uh, so it, it, it's a little difficult to really get uh, a sense of what the ground truth is. But absolutely, yes, we, we could do future discussions on this. We'll see what plays out over the coming days. For folks here, I would expect to see sanctions passed uh, from the United States. I would expect to see sanctions passed from our, our allies in, in Europe and NATO. I would expect to see further troop movements towards the east to reassure Poland and, and our, our allies that way. Um, and I would expect uh, the, the rhetoric to, to really heat up and also prepare to be bombarded with social media images of what could, for lack of a better term, would just be called atrocities uh, from Ukraine. I, I don't think it's going to be a pretty thing to, to watch. Uh, it, it'll be a it's going to be a tragedy playing out online in real time. Um, and that's something else that will be unique about the, this situation is previous conflicts in this area weren't, weren't live streamed to the world and, and parts of this one just might be. Thanks for having me on, Jason. I appreciate it. I'd love to stay and talk, but I've got, a, I've got kids that are expecting me to get them off the bus. So. No, I certainly understand that. I hope everybody gets uh, where they need to go safely. We really appreciate you again uh, taking the time to talk with us. Uh, you know, just a few uh, closing thoughts here. The situation is going to develop over the, the course of the next few days and, and weeks and months and, and potentially even years. And so we'll keep, uh, keep watching on it uh, to learn new developments and see what new pieces of information become available. You know, here in the United States, uh, it's an election year. So that means that this topic will uh, inevitably f uh, move up into the top of the priority list, and it already seems to be doing that. That means uh, we'll hear a lot of different viewpoints expressed. I think that's a good thing. A lot of different uh, suggestions about what we should or shouldn't do. I also think that's a good thing. Unfortunately, we're already seeing a lot of uh, disinformation, misinformation, and, and hyper-partisanship surrounding this issue. I think most voters expect that to continue uh, for the course of the year. I would just say, um, I know it's popular for, for one party to blame the other, but really the situation doesn't have anything directly to do with Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Um, of course, the American administration's uh, current and past uh, matter and their decisions matter, but to reduce the entire discussion down to just, well, it's, it's Donald Trump's fault or it's Joe Biden's fault. That's, that's a failure of imagination, and, and that's very poor analysis. It doesn't really tell you anything. Usually th those types of, those types of uh, accusations are designed to shut down analysis and to stop uh, intelligent conversation, when in fact that's exactly what we need to do more of. And so that's what we're trying to provide here uh, on this show, uh, is to offer a, a more detailed and more accurate perspective uh, of what's going on so that folks can understand uh, and cut through the veneer of the, uh, the hyper-partisanship that's uh, inevitably going to be part of uh, an election year. So I thank everybody for listening. I hope they have a great day, and take care.